So good to see everyone today. So good to be here again. And it's wonderful to see some new faces. So I hope as we spend the day together that I get a chance to meet you if I don't already know you. And I hope I get a chance to reconnect with you if we already know each other. The song service was uh, excellent in preparing our minds for where we're going to go this morning. This morning, as you can see on the screen, we're going to discuss a topic I would just simply call discerning the Lord's body. This comes from 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to back up to verse 23. Here in a few minutes, we're going to meet around the Lord's table. And we have an obligation when we do this to do a few things. The church at Corinth had messed this up. The church at Corinth had stopped doing what the Lord instituted. And as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he says, we need to fix this. Now, I'm putting it in Greg Branch's terms, but that's, that's how I, would, I interpret what he said. He said, he talked about what they did wrong. We're not going to go into that right now. But if you don't see the screen, we're in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, if you remember what he's talked about prior to this, they had turned the communion, the observance of the Lord's Supper, into something we might call a bring-your-own-lunch. It wasn't really potluck like we're going to have this afternoon where everybody just brings it, puts it on a common table, and we share it. But it seems as though the families, the people began to meet in their little groups. They had what they had. And someone that brought a lot and had plenty, they were just full and had plenty. And if there was somebody in the group that didn't have much or anything, they would sit over there and just have nothing. Now I hope that just screams inside of us, that's just not right. Why wouldn't you invite them over to at least share with yours? But that didn't happen in this church. And so some had a lot and some had none. And they certainly were not growing together. He said, this is how the Lord instituted it. There was a common bread that was shared. There was a common drink that was shared. Now look, if you don't know me, Glenda might remember this about me. I'm not a drink sharer. When Rachel and I started dating, I, I had this tendency. I love to stop and just have, always have a soda with me. If she wanted some, I'd be like, well, we'll get you one. I could kiss her, but I didn't want to share a soda with her. <laughs> now, children, that kind of changed a lot in my life. So what we're going to do here in a few minutes is not natural. It's not like, man, I cannot wait to share this cup with you. But I won't think about that then. There's something bigger happening with all this. And the church there needed to know that. He went on to say, therefore... Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. There's a way we need to participate in this. There's a manner that as we go about this here in a few minutes, we need to consider how we're doing it. Because it's possible, if I don't do it in the right manner, that 
I would be guilty of this body and blood. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Remember, that's the title of our study today, discerning the Lord's body. He said what they're doing wrong if they're drinking and eating damnation in themselves is they failed to discern the Lord's body. For this reason, because people were not discerning the Lord's body, for this reason many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. I don't know this congregation, so I can say this freely and I don't have to worry. Maybe Frank would get up here and he's like, oh, I can't say that because they know I know. and I don't know that. But here's what I'm kind of confident of in, a, in an audience's sides. There's someone here today and maybe more than one person that feels weak, but you came anyway. You feel sick spiritually. You came anyway. It's not like COVID. It's not like the flu. It's like it's a spiritual sickness. And you know what I'm talking about. But you don't know why. You don't know why you're growing weak. You don't know why you're sick. You don't know why you're spiritually asleep. You're sleepwalking, as it were. And I'm going to submit to you today, suggest to you today, there's a good chance it's failure to discern the Lord's body. It's somewhere in the midst of this, in all we do and the obligation we feel, and you're committed even already to one cup and one loaf, perhaps. But you're still, you don't know what's wrong. I suggest... When it's happened to me, I've failed to discern the Lord's body. What does it mean to discern the Lord's body? Literally, it comes from a Greek word. It means to separate thoroughly. I don't know about you, but that doesn't do a lot for me. <laughs> you break it out. Vine says to distinguish or separate out so as to investigate. So we're separating it out thoroughly because we're trying to figure it out. We're investigating something. What are we doing? We're determining the excellence or defects of a person or thing. If you were to find, you know how they, they define Greek words? Is they go to other elements of literature from this same time period and figure out how they used it there. And this would have been used in legal books. It's like figure out the excellence or defects. What's going on? Get to know this. So I would like this morning for the next few minutes to investigate, and I'm going to tell you it's the excellence of Jesus. You're not going to find defect. So cat's out of the bag. But here's what I know. We need to get to know him sometimes. This is somewhat of a memorial service, right? The memorial of Jesus Christ. I do a lot of funerals. And what I have found that is most effective for me and the family is you tell me about this person. I want to get to get with them. I want to hear the stories. And a lot of times it's things I already knew before, but I have forgotten. Or maybe I thought I knew, but there were details that I just did, I never heard before. Sometimes it's just re it's just opening back up these things we know about Jesus. And one of the things about a memorial service that I like the best is to try to pick up as young as anybody can remember them and take it through their life. And for a few minutes, I want us to do that. I want us to consider, first of all, Jesus as a boy. Yes, he was a kid. Is there any of you here today that are about 12 years old, close to 12? 
This is early on, so maybe you can stick with me for a minute. His parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. 12-year-olds, that was the time that they finally got to go with mom and dad. You're like, man, I've had to go to church my whole life. This was different. This was the Passover. This was a big deal. It only happened one time a year, and they never got to go until they were 12, perhaps. But by 12, it was time that they went, and Jesus was going. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among the relative and acquaintances. Now, you may call time out on this and say, how did people, they've just, they've just taken themselves from a little town that they lived in. They've gone to the big city, Jerusalem. All these people from all over have sojourned to this time of year. It would have been massively crowded. How do you leave your kid behind in Jerusalem? My Aunt Glenda's here today. She has 14 other brothers and sisters. So as I was growing up, not only were there the 15 kids, but we'd go to Grandma and Grandpa's in the summer at time of harvest or in the winter for the holidays. If we went to town for something, it took carloads of people. There was a lot. I don't know, 30-some cousins at the time. I don't know. Now there's like 60 and all these families. And I remember one time that we got all back to the farm, got time for dinner and started counting heads. And my cousin Robbie was missing. Glenda remembers it. She's laughing. Now then, Thomas was just a little hole-in-wall town. I guess it had a stop sign. I'm not sure. But there was some kind of a little place near in town. They called down there and said, is there a kid in the park? And Robbie was still playing all by himself. You see, they thought he was with somebody else. That's how it was. Now, maybe you grew up in a family like that. Maybe you've had situations like that. That's what I picture here with Jesus. They just thought he was with some of the other kinfolk. They've got a full day's journey, and now they can't find him. Panic sticks in. Twelve years old, back in Jerusalem. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And now so it was, after three days, they found him in the temple. Is three days any accident? Pretty cool things happen over three days within the scriptures. Three days they find him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Question, where have they been looking the other two days? Why'd they go to the temple the third day? Scriptures don't tell us, but the parent in me says they went to retrace their steps because he wasn't in all the places they thought and expected to find him. The other option is... Maybe if we pray there and get a priest to pray with us, we can get some guidance. What they found was a 12-year-old Jesus sitting in the midst of them. These leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees. He's not only listening, but he's asking them questions. And they're asking him some questions, and they're astounded at his understanding and his answers to their questions. They have a prodigy. Now I realize the book of Isaiah says that the Messiah will be quick to get the scent. He would be of quick understanding. 
Hebrew phrase actually means, I understand, means quick to get the scent. If you're a dog guy, you got coon dogs, cold nose. But this still tells us something about Jesus. If you're here today, you're 12 years old, are you interested in what the Bible says about Jesus as a 12-year-old? Are you interested in understanding so that you can have a conversation with the people when they're talking Bible? Ask them questions. Maybe even be able to answer a couple of theirs. That was the boy Jesus. He was the neighbor. So when they saw him, the parents, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? You look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. What were you thinking? Do you know how we've been worried about? Now, parent clicks in. We understand this. Three days. And he's just acting like there's nothing wrong. What does Jesus say? He said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He gets it. Somebody says, I don't know if a 12-year-old can get it. I know some 12-year-olds. I know some 5-year-olds that's like, what? How did you ask that question? Right? 12-year-old can get it. Don't give, you, don't give your kids a pass because they're only 12. And if you're a 12-year-old, don't th- you know you know stuff. Don't hide behind your age. He says, you know I need to be about my father's business. They did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Fascinates me something about human nature. Look, Mary and Joseph had angels speak to them. They've had divine intervention. She surely hasn't forgotten that this isn't Joseph's son. But our minds will do that if we don't watch it, won't they? We can know something's right. We can know exactly what it is. But the further we get away from reminding us of the truth of God's words, we begin to create our own worldview and we get away from God's designed worldview. The 12-year-old had to remind mom and dad where this all came from. Then he went down to them. Now, 12-year-olds, he didn't say, look, do I need to take over now, mom and dad? Clearly, you don't get what's going on. No, this 12-year-old, he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He went home and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He didn't say, clearly, I know more than you do. It's time for me to kind of run this house. After all, you know, I'm the king. He went and he was subject to them. He minded them. He honored them. He increased in wisdom and stature, not only with his parents, but he did so with God and with mankind. Jesus was a wonderful example of faithful youth. And today, if you're young here, if you're trying to decide what expectation you can set for your youth, Jesus has provided the path. What a wonderful example. Jesus' baptism. You know, one thing I love to know when I'm doing a memorial service for somebody that's been a Christian, is when were they baptized? When were they born again? We know the day of their birth, and we know the day of their death. That's like printed on everything. But the day they're born again is never printed on stuff hardly. It's recorded that Jesus was baptized. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Jesus came from Galilee to John to the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? I cannot imagine what it would have been like to be John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. 
It's hard enough for me to feel like, who am I? Is, is kind of what goes through my mind. I can relate totally to the statement, Jesus, I need, I need what you have to offer. I, you can't ask me to do this for the Son of God. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. If for no other reason in the Bible, the other plethora of examples of baptism, we only had this record, this would be enough for me to convince you and myself, we need to be baptized. And yet, the predominant majority of people that claim to follow Christ today and have assemblies just like this one this morning in Bakersfield and in Oakdale and throughout this world will tell you baptism is not necessary to fulfill all righteousness to be saved. Jesus had a different opinion about it, even for himself. Did Jesus have any sin that needed to be washed away? No. In fact, Scripture says he didn't even have guile in his body. What's guile? Guile's that deceptive part that you don't want to outright lie, but you certainly don't want them to know the truth, so you're going to try to structure your story or your explanation so they think something is one way when really it was another. Jesus didn't even do that. And he says, I have to be baptized. You need to, the King James says, suffer it to be so now. For thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and a light lighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Whatever you believe about the Godhead, you have to have a belief that's consistent with this passage. That God is in heaven speaking, His Spirit is descending like a dove and could light upon Jesus, but was not Jesus, and Jesus was the one that was baptized and has just come up out of the water. Three different presentations, personalities, not the exact same being. Unified in, 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 in purpose and in spirit, no doubt but three different entities, whatever I believe. Jesus baptized, all this happens today. Don't tell me I don't need to be baptized. You know, I know the church does that, but I just, I like this church. I'm going to start coming here because I just like everybody a lot, but I don't need that baptism. Then you're saying you don't need what even Jesus was willing to show as an example of fulfilling righteousness. Today, may we never have managed that. I want you to know another thing about Jesus is he loved children. Absolutely he did. In fact, the context I want to share with you today is Jesus has just corrected the Pharisees' unscriptural view of divorce and remarriage. Now, in the generation I grew up in, in Oklahoma, this was the, this was the debate topic. Yeah, the Holy Spirit was kind of in my teenage years and early 20s. But from the time I remember sitting in the den and listening to my parents discuss things with family members or friends or other congregations, we'd travel somewhere and there it was. It was always after dinner conversation. And it wasn't always pleasant. Because people, and some of you know this time period, this is what's just happened. 
And so as I think about the passage we're about to read, I think about that they're coming off the hills of this, so much so, and they're so discouraged by what Jesus has taught them and that it's changing their whole view of things. The cream of the crop, his disciples, when they got alone, do you remember what they said to him? Jesus, if this is how it is with divorce and remarriage, it's better off not even to get married. Now, this has been a hard thing for them to take, and they're thinking, forget marriage altogether. Put this context. Any, you name the subject of you, whatever group you've been discussing, and everybody's worked up and heated. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Have you been in one of those? The men have all been arguing about this, debating, whatever you want to call it, and the kids run up. Daddy, Daddy, hold me. Honey, get these kids out of here. We don't, everybody's, they're edgy. And that's what happens with these kids. And the disciples rebuke them. I don't know if they're rebuking the kids or their mamas or the other family that let them run into this little organization. But what does Jesus say? He says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. I picture him just sitting down and saying, bring them in here. This is what it's about. And I got to remember this as we think about doctrine and as we earnestly contend for the faith, and we have to. If we ever forget these little kids need attention and love and hugs too, even by dad and the preacher, if we ever forget that, we're going to lose them. Mamas have an important part, and they just have a natural affection and ability to see things that not enough of us guys do. Jesus did. And I want you to notice what he did after he laid his hands on them. After he gave them that loving attention, he didn't say, okay, now any more questions? Scripture says, and he left. He left on a good note. He left on a high note. He had already taught them truth. And we can sit there and we can keep rehashing the same arguments over and over until we just can't stand one another. Or we can get our attention back on the kingdom of heaven. Growing together in love. Showing affection everywhere it needs to be shown. And move on and keep moving. Does that to say he turned his back on what he had just taught them? Absolutely not. In fact, I believe when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, Jesus already taught this. I believe it. It's still in force. Jesus loved children even in the midst of doctrinal arguments amongst the brethren. You know, I want you to know also the thing about Jesus' character is he would like you even if other people didn't. You didn't have to fit his mold. You didn't have to fit a social norm or expectation. In Luke chapter 19, it says, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. I remember this song as a little kid. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Grown man, rich man in town, he wants to see Jesus, but it's almost like a parade as Jesus comes through, and they won't let him up. They didn't like him for one. Why wouldn't they like him? He was the tax collector. We're going to find out a little bit more reason of what they thought about him as we go, but he couldn't. So what did he do? 
Did he call and say, hey, I, you know who I am? I'm rich. Pay people to move. No, he ran ahead of the crowd. See this little guy, this grown man running up ahead of people? He climbs into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was going to pass that way. He could tell the direction that this whole crowd was going. And he sees a sycamore tree down there. He's like, I'll see him. Grown man runs down there, climbs up in the tree. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. Now look, he just wanted to put eyes on this Jesus. Can you imagine the thrill of his heart? Nobody here likes me. I just wanted to see this guy, and now he wants to come to my house? So he made his haste and came down and received him joyfully. He was thrilled. He was excited. But when they all saw it, the people that were with him, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. You're like, I thought he was a tax collector. See, the people looked at tax collectors in that day as thieves. Now, in our society, if you tell somebody, yeah, I work for the IRS... It automatically makes me go, hmm, what do you do? Right? Audit. Do you, you check in my taxes? You, you making my life hard? But now this was a whole other level to them. In fact, it was commonly reported that many of these tax collectors would take a little more than they should have so that they could pad their own pockets. These people looked at Zacchaeus as a common sinner, maybe a worse sinner than others. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. Stop. Time out real quick. Do you think he's saying, look, from now on, just to make this all even, I will take, well, I'll give half of my goods to the poor. Or do you think he's saying, look, Lord, I'm not who they say I am. Half of what I have. My goods, I give to the poor. Has he been doing it already, or is he saying he'll do it from this day and this day forward? Interesting question. Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. I'm not who these people think I am. I'm not a sinner. I don't steal from them. I give to them half of what I have. And if I have, now he's talking in the past tense. If I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. You know what fourfold is? Four times. If I took an extra $1,000 from your taxes, he says, I'm going to give you 4000 If I took an extra 500 from you, I'm going to give you 2000 Now, here's my opinion of this, because the Scriptures don't tell us anybody coming to collect or, or making an accusation against him. I think Zacchaeus knew... There's nobody here going to stand up and have an accusation. I, they haven't done that. You know, it happens sometimes that people are falsely accused. People gossip just because they think whatever they think, and they really don't know somebody. You ever have anybody say stuff about you, and you're like, how do they even say that? I don't know which it is. But here's what I know. Zacchaeus said, look, that's not me. It's not who I want to be, and here's what I'm willing to say. Would you... Would you give half of what you have to people who are poor? Like, well, Greg, I'm not rich. If you were rich, would you give half of what you had to people who are poor? Now, you might say, if I was rich, I would. I'll only believe it if you're doing what you can with what limited resources you have. Now, some of the most giving people I've ever met are some of the poorest people I've known. 
There's a rich man saying, what do you have? And put it in our day and term. He had a million. Would you take 500,000 and say, I'm going to distribute that to the poor? This guy's character is something. And yet the, everybody in town thought horrible things about him. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus loved him even when nobody else cared about him. Today, you might feel like you're just the one that nobody really cares about. Jesus would have loved you. In fact, Jesus does love you. I want you to know this thing about Jesus. Sometime in all these good characteristics, Jesus gets painted like a milk toast master. But he had, he'd take a stand when he needed to. Don't doubt it for just a second. In fact, John chapter 2, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is older. He's not 12 anymore. He's grown up. 18 plus years later, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers of money and overturned the tables. Do you see what he just said? He made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple oh, and the sheep and the oxen. Now, I'm not suggesting he hit any of those men with that whip, but I am suggesting it was used to drive those people and the livestock out of the temple. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's found in Psalm 69 and 9. You know what that word zeal comes in the Greek? It literally means heat. The fire for your house, the heat, the passion for the house of God. He says he could not take it. it ate. You ever have something to eat you up inside? What is commonly reported is these changers of money would sell. People would come from a long way to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they could bring money, but you couldn't bring the livestock you needed for the sacrifices, and so people would be there to sell it. But maybe the currency from where you came from would not buy you anything in Jerusalem, so they had money changers there too, and they were commonly known to not give a good exchange rate. You see, it wasn't that they were trying to assist people with the sacrifices, they were making this a profit center. And Jesus says, get them out. Everybody, out. And he drove them out of the temple. Jesus did not have patience for hypocrites. That's what these people represented. What is a hypocrite? Anybody that demands that we follow what the Bible says? No, that's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody that demands that you follow what the Bible says, but they themselves won't do it. They're just, they're acting. It's just, they're playing the part, but that's not really them. That's a hypocrite. Do not let people make you think that looking at the Bible and having faith and reading it and seeing what it says and doing it makes you a Pharisee. No, a Pharisee was someone that knew what the law says, but they were always trying to find loopholes. Trying to bind heavy burdens on other people that they themselves wouldn't carry. 
Jesus said about those people, he says, do what they say, but don't do what they do. They're saying the right thing, but they themselves are not that. Jesus had no, no patience with people who pretended to be a Christian, who pretended, in this case, it wasn't Christianity, it would have been Judaism, who pretended to follow God, but in reality, they were just there for the money. They had a business opportunity and weren't about to miss the convention. Jesus had no patience for that. We have to know this about our loving Savior, the one who likes people nobody else likes, who has time for children, who will stand for truth and doctrine. If we think we're going to skirt through this life and pretend like we're all this here at the church in Bakersfield or anywhere else, and then in our real heart and our other life, play the part of, the, of sin, Jesus sees right through that. He won't have any more patience with us than he did with them. May we turn our heart together. The last thing I'd like to remind you this morning happened at the very end of Jesus' life. I don't know if he was a mama's boy as much as he just took care of everybody, but there was something that took place in the book of John, beginning in verse 25. It says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Jesus has now been gone through this mock trial. He's been tortured. He's been nailed to the cross. All these things taking place Thinking about a dying thief on a cross next to him? And by his cross is his mother's sister Mary, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now you can go to the end of the book of John, and you'll find out that John reveals he's the one that he's been referring to as the other disciple. And so I'm going to put this in my words. He looks and says, Now you look at this word woman, and sometimes in our culture, you say, Hey woman, that's not really a good thing. This was not like that. That's not the way this, this is, this is literally he's talking to his mother. And he says, I want you to go with John. And John, I want you to take care of my mom. This is a fascinating thought for me. Because we know that his brother James was still around. Would be eventually. Jesus had a special relationship and he appears to have a special confidence in John. And he needed his mom to get that kind of confidence. As you read the Gospel of John compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's just a different tenor to it, isn't it? There's a, there's a love that comes out in it that, and compassion. Was that what Jesus wanted to make sure his mom had? What we know, and if you can picture anything as you close your eyes and think about, as you suffering dreadfully and seeing your mom and thinking somebody needs to get her out of here. Somebody needs to take care of my mom. That's the passion Jesus had for his mom. It wasn't just a callous, cold-hearted, hey, I came here to do a job, I gotta get home. I gotta... Palace of gold in heaven. No. 
He gave John a responsibility. He gave, made sure his mom was protected. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Have you ever been thirsty? I can remember times just hoping that we'd get some, can we just stop and get some water? Whether it was work or whether it was two a days or whether it was just a day that's so hot. Jesus was thirsty. Today, you get to determine the excellence or defects of a person or thing according to vines. Today, we could do this over and over. We could just keep going through stories about Jesus. But it's time for you to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. And as Christians, we need to make sure we discern the body of Christ as we come around this table to meet him. According to Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. We've tried to share the word of God about Jesus today. If you have faith in this, you heard it, and you believe. Hebrews 11 and 6 says that we must believe that he is, and we need to believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Today, are you ready to commit your life that you believe in this Jesus and you're going to seek him diligently. That's the kind of faith we talk about. In Acts 17 and 30, the disciple says that there was a time God winked at ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What does repentance mean? Repentance means, Greg, you can't just do life like you think you need to do life. Frank can't just figure out his own path, but we have to surrender our self-will to God's will. Whatever this book says. Whatever we read in the Bible, that's, when, that's repentance. And all men everywhere. That includes you and me. That's repentance. In Romans 10 and 10, we understand that our faith comes, that with the heart man believes unto righteousness. With our mouth, confession is made unto salvation. The Ethiopian nobleman in Acts 8 said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What do you believe today? We know that when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he says, who do people say I am? And they said, well, some say you're this prophet or that. And he says, who do you say I am? It was Peter that spoke up, right? And he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? That's a good one. Anybody else got another? No, Jesus said, bless you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal that unto you. You received that from the Father. There is no greater confession you can make today than Jesus Christ and the Son of God. One that was blessed by Jesus. One that I believe the Ethiopian nobleman made. But that is the essence today of a confession that we need to make regarding our Christ. And we need to be baptized. Galatians 3.27 said, As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Can you imagine going through life without Christ? Paul told the church in Galatia, Time out real quick. You know, people will say, well, why are all the baptisms mostly in the book of Acts? And then you hardly read about it in the rest of the, the Gospels. Think about it. The book of Acts, what was it? It was the Acts of the Apostles. It was what the Apostles did as they went from place to place spreading the Gospel. And they were baptizing people because they were converting people. What was the letter of Rome, to the Romans about? Corinthians, Galatians. It was to congregations that now existed from people who've been converted. You don't go telling people that are part of a congregation, oh, be baptized. You don't keep saying the same message. That's why it's not full of telling them. But what you will find, like in Galatians, is reminders. 
That when you were baptized, that's how you put on Christ. And you'll read that in the book of Ephesians. He reminds him there was one baptism. So the gospel's letters written to churches are not void of baptism, but that's not their purpose. It's to write to people who had been baptized about how to now function as a church. It's a beautiful picture when you think like, don't let people say, oh, the only place you'll find book is baptism, hardly in the book of Acts. Well, say, well, of course, that's where people are converted. Today, we talked about Jesus. There's absolutely no reason. If you've never been baptized today for the remission of your sins, as Jesus described it in the end of the book of Matthew, and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then we'd love to assist you in that. If you're like, hey, Greg, I mean, you seem like a nice guy. I hear you're Wade's dad. That's great. But I've really been studying with Frank or with Terry or one of the other guys. And I was hoping they'd baptize me. And I'm going to tell you, I am thrilled that's perfect. That's the best way it could be. I just want to encourage you to take that step. If you're a Christian today, and as you prepare to meet around the Lord's table, and you want the manner that you do this memorial to be right, you say, you know what? i got some things I need to fix. You don't have to be baptized again. That's been done if you've already done it. You need to pray to God, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, that he'll forgive you. And 1 John 1, 8 and 9, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As a child of God, you can pray to God, and he will forgive you. But as a child of God, sometimes we want the prayers of others. And according to James 5.16, if we confess our faults one to another and pray one for another, that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So today, as you prepare to meet around the Lord's table, if you desire the prayers of the church, then we want to pray with you and for you. If you're here and you feel compelled to respond to the gospel invitation, won't you do that? We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.